you've got your Bibles and I hope you do, please open them to the book of Psalms. And this morning we'll be in Psalm 67. Psalm 67. Today is the beginning of our annual serve week. If you don't know what that is, this is uh, one week every summer where it is our hope that we would see this as kind of a stay-at-home mission trip. Our desire for this week is not just that we would be active in serving our community one week during the summer, but that this one week really would whet our appetite for serving our community all throughout the year. And this psalm, Psalm 67, really serves to give us a blueprint for why we would do this in the first place. Psalm 67 is a blueprint for missions. It unveils for us God's desire and really Israel's hope to see the nations find their joy and gladness supremely in God alone, in the God of Israel. That God would be glorified in and by the nations as they find their gladness rooted in Him, in the knowledge of His character and in the knowledge of His saving power. So Psalm 67 is a psalm of praise. We're looking at a psalm of praise this morning. It's also a psalm of thanksgiving, really thanking God for all of the blessings that are from Him and asking that the blessing of Israel might in turn cause the nations to glorify the God of Israel. So let's read Psalm 67 and then we'll dive into it. Church, this is God's very breath to us. Listen to it. Psalm 67, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let's pray. Father, it is such a privilege and joy to be able to gather as your people in this place and at this time to worship you, to bow in our reverent awe of you, and to seek to be built up and equipped as your people, to be faithfully following you and be obedient to the call that you have placed on our lives to make disciples of all nations. And Father, we're so thankful that you have given us this book that we hold in our hands. And Father, we confess together that this is your word, divinely inspired by you, 
And we are so thankful to hold it in our hands and to, the, to know that you have so preserved it throughout the generations uh, that we can know that this is your very breath to us. And we are thankful, Father, that this morning that you would use your word to equip and build up the church to be more faithful to the calling that you have placed on us. And so, Father, we do ask that you would change us, transform us this morning. I pray, Father, that your word would be driven deep into my heart and the hearts of my brothers and sisters in this room so that our hearts will beat with yours. And they, we would long for the nations to give you the worship that you deserve from them. And Lord, that those that are among us that are not our brothers and sisters yet, that you would bring them across the line of faith, that you would make the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, readily apparent to them, so that they would trust in Christ alone and also be remade into a worshiper to give you the glory that you deserve. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at Psalm 67, uh, there is a chiastic structure here that I think is helpful for us to understand the flow of thought, the progression of thought as the psalmist builds to his main point. The word chiasmus comes from the Latin that means crossing or intersection. And as we see the structure of this psalm in a chiastic structure, it forms at least one half of an X, one half of a crossing, or one half of the Greek letter chi, which is where chiastic comes from. And this structure of the psalm really helps to show us the development of thought, the progression of thought, and gives us an indication as to the core idea the central point of this psalm as it builds in from the boundaries to the very central idea of what he's after here. And so I want you to look at the screen as I've, as I've kind of graphically kind of portrayed the, the chiastic structure here. Verses 1 and 7 go together here. Verses 1 and 7, the focus is God's blessing of his people. In verse 1, the psalmist is praying for. He's asking for God to be gracious to them, to Israel, to the people of God, and to bless them and to make his face shine upon them. And then down in verse 7, he expresses confidence that God will surely do this, that he will surely bless Israel. And so that's the focus of the, the outer parameter, that God is blessing his people. And then verses 2 and 6 also go together. And the focus there is the nations outside of Israel, the peoples of the earth, the nations of the earth, seeing God blessing his people. And so you see that in, in 1 and 7, God is blessing his people. In verses 2 and 6 now, the nations are being made aware of this. They're seeing this. And they're beginning to know something about God and, and about what God is doing. So they're learning about the God of Israel. And then, of course, verses 3 and 5 go together uh, as they are repetitions of one another where, where they're praising the nations. 
And so you see the progression there. Verses 1 and 7, God has blessed his people. Verses 2 and 6, the nations are being made aware of that. They're learning something about God. What are they learning about God? Verse 3, uh, or excuse me, verse 2, that your way may be known on the earth. How, how God, you interact with your people. What, what your saving power is, that your saving power may be known among the nations. In verse 6, uh, they see that the earth has yielded its increase for Israel. So they're being made aware of God blessing his people. And then as a result of this, as a result of the nations being made aware of who God is and what God does, now the peoples are praising God. And this all reaches a crescendo in verse 4. We see through this structure that that is the central idea. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. And so the, the, the core aim of the psalmist here is that the nations would find their supreme gladness and joy in the God of Israel. But it comes from God blessing his people, the nations being made aware of that, and then them praising God and finding their greatest joy and gladness in him. That is the aim of the psalmist, and it is the aim of God. Now, there are a couple of background texts to this particular psalm that help us to understand the framework with which he's working. The first is from Numbers 6, verses 24 and 26. This is what's known as the Aaronic blessing, the blessing of Aaron. It's really the words that God gave to Aaron so that Aaron would pronounce them over God's people as God's blessing to his people. The Aaronic blessing says this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So as you can see, as we compare the Aaronic blessing in number 6 with uh, Psalm 67, at least the first couple of verses, there's a great deal of similarity. Three of the verbs that are listed in number 6 there are repeated exactly in verse 1 of Psalm 67. And so this similarity is not by accident. This is intentional on the part of the writer. We don't know who specifically wrote this particular psalm. But this would have been intentional on his part. And it, and it would have been readily apparent to the reader of this psalm. They, they would have thought, of course, that, that is the blessing of Aaron. That's what that is. That's the Aaronic blessing. And it would have been a reminder to them that God is the source of all their blessing. The other key background text for us is Genesis chapter 12. The first four verses there, this is what's known as the Abrahamic promise. This is where God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans to a land that he will show them. And he says, I'm going to bless you, but that blessing is not going to end with you. That through you, you're going to bless all the nations of the earth. Listen to verses 1 through 4 of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that, so here's God's intention and purpose in blessing Abraham and his family, so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so God promised Abraham that he would bless he and his family, but that it wouldn't end with he and his family. God's purpose, God's aim in blessing Abraham was that he would in turn bless the nations, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his family, through Abraham and his offspring. So fast forward to the New Testament when Jesus says to his disciples after he rose from the dead and before he ascended to heaven, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. That was not a new thing. That was not a new hope. In fact, that was the hope that we saw in the Old Testament. That, that was the old hope. That was the original hope that God's aim, his target, has always been the nations, not just Israel. And of course, we just finished our study of the book of Revelation a few weeks ago, where we see in Revelation 7 the fulfillment of this hope where there will be one day gathered around the throne and around the Lamb a people from every tribe, every language, every tongue, and every nation, worshiping God and the Lamb, all peoples of the earth. So we see their fulfillment of that. But Psalm 67 here, it's a psalm of praise, but it's also a psalm of petition, uniting together those two passages the the Aaronic blessing God bless your people make your face to shine upon them uniting the Aaronic blessing with the Abrahamic promise and covenant that God would bless his people so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed so Psalm 67 unites both of those together into one song of praise and petition so there are three points, three takeaways really that I want us to walk away from this particular psalm with, and those three takeaways will mirror the chiastic structure that we've seen in this psalm already. First, we'll talk about God blessing his people. Second, that God's people must then communicate this so that the nations would be made aware of who God is and what he's like and what he's done. And then thirdly, all of this is with the ultimate aim of intersecting the worship of God with the gladness of the nations. So let's look first at God blessing his people. It's point number one. We should want God to bless us so that we can be a blessing. We should want and desire even pray for, as the psalmist does, God to bless us, his children, his people, so that we, in turn, like Abraham and his family, would be a blessing. Look at verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us. And make his face to shine upon us. Selah. And so this is the psalmist beseeching God, petitioning for God to be gracious to Israel, to bless Israel, and for God to make his glory to shine on Israel. For God's glory to be with Israel. 
That word selah, sometimes you hear us pronounce that in our readings. We don't do it all the time, but most often we do. That word, I believe, is part of inspired scripture. Uh, they, they are in the original documents. Problem is, we don't know exactly what it means. Selah. Most Bible scholars tell us it has something to do with the musical nature of the song. Because these, again, these are songs. Uh, the, the Old Testament people, the Israelites, would sing these. This is the Psalter. And, and so the, perhaps because this is a musical notation, those who were providing music during the recitation of these songs would know what Selah meant. Uh, a good number of scholars tell us that perhaps Selah has something to do with pausing, pausing the music in order to um, draw emphasis or accentuate the lyrics at that particular point, that, that the music would either come to a crescendo or would stop and pause so that, so that it would draw emphasis to the lyrics there. And because of the emphasis here on Israel being blessed, there in verse 1 and the reference in verse 6 to the earth yielding forth its increase, as a result of that, a lot of Bible scholars tell us that this psalm was probably written to be used during one of the many harvest festivals that were celebrated throughout the year. And so if that's the case, you can just imagine a farmer standing before his harvest he sees this grand harvest in his field before him. And what is he doing? He's thanking God. He's praising God for this crop, this harvest that is in front of him. And so Selah would be an opportunity to thank God for his gracious blessing, for his provision, and perhaps a reminder that every blessing that we enjoy is from the hand of God. And so for the nation of Israel... This would have been a reminder to them that of just all the ways that God has come through for them, all the ways that God has blessed that nation. This would have been a reminder to them that God had made a provision for their ancestors, Jacob and his family, when there was a famine in the land of Palestine, that God made a provision by elevating one of the brothers, Joseph, to a position of prominence down in Egypt so that his family would be saved by the storehouses that he had filled with food to last throughout the famine. It would have been a reminder to them that God had, had blessed them and provided for them during that time. It also would have reminded them that 400 years after that, after hundreds of years of slavery down in Egypt, that God had blessed them by raising up Moses and used Moses to deliver his people out of slavery. It was a reminder that God had blessed them by leading them across and through the Red Sea and then later across the Jordan River. And then immediately after that, that God had blessed them by causing the walls of Jericho to come down. This would have been a reminder to them that God had blessed them by being with them in a pillar of cloud by day and leading them by a pillar of fire by night. It would have been a reminder to them that God had blessed them in driving out the Canaanites from the land and that even in exile, that he had never left them. He had never 
not provided for them. And so Israel would have been reminded here as they read this psalm of all the ways that God had been gracious to them and all the ways that God had blessed them. And so for us today, the church, this is a reminder to us as well of all the ways that God has been gracious to us and all the ways that God has blessed us, our family, and our church. And his blessing to us, the church, certainly is in part materially, physically, numerically, but his blessing to us is primarily spiritual. And that is the spiritual blessing of being brought into, literally grafted into the people of God. And this happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our primary blessing. Because in many respects, we, at least in part, we are the fulfillment of that Abrahamic promise. Because most of us in this room are Gentiles in the strict sense of the word, in that we are not Jews by birth, ethnically. And so even though we are not part of Abraham's family by birth, we are part of the all the families of the earth shall be blessed as a result of Abraham's family. As Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 3 verse 14, he says, In Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so that is our primary blessing. It's not that we're not thankful for all of the other ways in which God has blessed us and our families and even our church. Certainly we are thankful to God for those things. And we recognize that he is the source of them. He's the one who gave us all of those things in order to steward them for his purposes. But when we think about God's blessing for us today, the primary way in which he has blessed us is by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we never could, to achieve the righteousness that we could never achieve in a thousand lifetimes, and to die on a cross in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve because of our rebellion against God, so that you and I, by faith in Jesus Christ, could be grafted into that family. The blessing of Abraham has, in fact, come to the Gentiles. But the psalmist here in this psalm moves very quickly from a recognition of God blessing his people. He moves very quickly from that to the reason for him doing so. So in verse 2, he says, "...that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you." So church, it's okay for us to want God to bless us. It's okay to desire God's blessing and even pray for God to bless us. As long as we recall... That God's work to bless Israel was not primarily about Israel. And consequently, God's gracious work to bless us is not primarily about us. God's aim is the nations. His target is the peoples of the earth. 
And so as long as there are people groups that don't know his name, as long as there are families of the earth, nations, people groups, who have not come to faith in Jesus Christ and are not represented in that Revelation 7 vision of the throne room of God and the great multitude from every tribe, nation, and language and people group, as long as that's the case, then we have work to do. Does God want to bless his people? Absolutely. Should we desire for God to bless us? Sure. But we should desire God's blessing with the understanding that we are intended to be channels or or conduits, if you will, for God to bless others. And if the primary blessing that we enjoy as the New Testament people of God, the church, if the primary blessing that we enjoy is that gospel that we can be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, then God saved us, first and foremost, to reclaim us as worshipers, to glorify His name. But secondarily, God saved us to send us out. To send us out as ambassadors and and as witnesses of His gospel so that the nations would also hear and know of His saving ways. So the first point here is that, is that we can and should desire and pray for God to bless us and recognize that all the blessings that we have are from the gracious hand of God. But we do this with a heart that beats in unison with God's heart for the nations. And we must see that God's blessing to us, His blessings, whatever they might be, are intended to be stewarded for God's purposes to reach the hearts of the nations so that they too would praise Him. So that's the first takeaway from this psalm. And then the second one really follows directly on from that, that God's people must then communicate to the nations about God. God's people must communicate to the nations about God. So in order for there to be a connection made between God blessing His people and the nations praising God, well, the nations need to hear about God. The nations need to be made aware of who God is and what He has done. Verse 2 makes that implication apparent. It says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us. That's verse 1. Verse 2, So that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. And then verse 3, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. So the purpose of God blessing His people in verse 1 is so that the nations would praise God in verse 3, but in order for that to happen, the nations need to be made aware of who God is and what He has done with His people. As the psalmist says, that your way may be known, how you interact with your people, who you are with your people. In other words, God bless your people so that your character and your nature, your way may be known among the nations and so that the nations would know of your saving power. And so if the nations are going to praise God, then the nations must know about who God is and how he relates to his people, how he treats his people. They must know of his grace and his mercy 
and his holiness and his justice, his steadfast love, his greatness, his strength, his wisdom, all of this. And how did the Old Testament people outside of Israel know about the God of Israel? How did they know? How did they become aware of that? Well, in that day, God platformed a nation. He platformed a nation, his chosen people, the nation of Israel. And in order for the nations to know about the God of Israel, he chose this nation as a, as a platform people. And so he gave them a land. And he drove out the people, the inhabitants of that land, so that he might give it to them. He protected them from invading armies in miraculous ways. He provided for them in miraculous ways. The manna from heaven, the water from the rock. And this was how the nations knew of Israel's God. But how do the nations know about that same God today? Well, today, God no longer platforms a nation. Today, God platforms a people, the church, the body of Christ. And the church has been given a mission, and the church has been sent into the world with that message. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm with you always through the end of the earth. Make disciples of all nations, he says. Take the gospel with you and make not just converts, but followers of Jesus who are obedient and faithful to Jesus who will then do the same. Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. See, in order for the nations to have a knowledge of God and a knowledge of God's saving power, God's people must tell the nations about God. And God's people must tell the nations about God's saving power, which is the gospel. As Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to save to the Jew first and also to the Greek. <clears throat> the proclamation of that gospel by God's chosen people, the church of Jesus Christ, is God's plan A for the nations to know about him. And there is no plan B. God, God doesn't have a plan B here. His plan A is for the church to faithfully proclaim the gospel among the nations so that the nations might know who he is. And friend, this is what Serve Week is all about. We're serving our community this week because we want our, this God. We're loving our community this week because we want our community to know that there is a God who loves sinners. We're giving to our community this week because, well, because we want our community to know about a God who has given his only son so that sinners might be rescued. This week, we are sacrificing time and energy and, and our resources 
Because we want our community to know about a God who has sacrificed his son to rescue sinners like us back to himself. To rescue us from what we deserve. And we're doing this because we love this community. And we love the people in this community. And so we want them to know this God. This God who has been so gracious and merciful to us. And so we are, at least in part, fueled by, compelled by, a love for people and a desire for them to know God. But we're also fueled by and compelled by a desire to see God praised by those who don't even know his name right now. We want, we want this because we know that our God deserves this. We know that he deserves the worship of the nations. And so along with the psalmist, we cry out, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The psalmist cries this out because he is fully convinced that God is worthy of the praises of the nations. And so we too cry out in like manner. And so the third point of this passage is therefore that God's aim is the worship of God intersecting with the gladness of the peoples, of the nations. We see God's ultimate aim with respect to the nation spelled out in verses 3 through 5. He says, let, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Selah. Let, all, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The psalmist's aim here, his highest aim is the worship of God. He wants the nations to praise the God of Israel, the one true God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. And this is the psalmist's aim because this is also God's aim. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, says this infamous quote, he says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. You see, we were created to be worshipers. That's why God made us. That's why he made us in his image, so that we would show forth the image of our creator, that we would worship God. That's why he made us. But because of our sin, we have marred the image of God in us. It's stained with our own rebellion and sin. And because of that, we can't do that for which we were created. We can't worship God. That with which we would worship God is dead in our trespasses and sins. But those who have been made new, those who have been saved by grace through faith, those who have experienced that new birth, that regeneration, have been recreated in Christ 
now to be the worshipers we were originally intended to be by our God. Now we can do that which, for which we were created. Now we can worship God in spirit and truth. We can give him the worship that he so deserves. But the point is here that there are others that are made in the image of God who aren't worshiping him as God because they too, like we once were, are dead in their trespasses and sins. And God intends, church, to bring in the full number of his sheep. And he will reclaim all of his wayward children among men. But his means of reclaiming them is to use his church, to use the body of Christ, his sons and daughters, to proclaim that gospel among the nations so that he might save them. And so this is why we have missions, because he is still reclaiming his children from among men, from among our neighbors, from among our co-workers, and yes, from among the nations. This is why we send out and support missionaries at this church. And by the way, we're going to have the distinct privilege over the next several weeks, next few months of actually having several of our missionaries that serve in different parts of the world here with us. And, and they're, and they're going to share with us what God is doing. And, and, and when that happens, church, I, I, I beg of you to not just pay attention with your head, but with your heart. Because part of the heart behind this is that our heart would beat with the psalmist because with our heart beats with the psalmist, it beats with the heart of God for the nations. So listen as, as we have the privilege of hearing what our God is doing among the nations in bringing this to pass. It is so encouraging to hear that. But, but that's why we do this. That's why we send money around the world. That's why we send missionaries around the world. That's why we ask you to put a blank check before God and even your children to hold them loosely that God would send whoever he intends to send from here. Why? Because this is what God is doing. He is calling his children to be faithful to proclaim the gospel among the nations. That's his plan. This is why we talk about church planting, to extend the gospel so that, God, so that God would use his people to be a part of bringing and reclaiming in his lost children among men. And this is why we have Serve Week. This is why we have a week like we'll have this week where we are serving literally night and day so that we will be reminded what our identity is all year long. That our identity is that of a missionary. That, that we are witnesses. That we are ambassadors. That we are a sent people. And that we have been sent with a message to be faithful to proclaim. Because God intends to use us, church, to make the nations aware of who he is and what he has done so that he would be worshiped and praised tomorrow by those who don't even know his name today. So God's aim is the intersection of the worship of God and the gladness of all peoples. We see that come to a crescendo in verse 4. Let all the nations be glad and sing for joy. 
For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. See, God's aim here is not that the nations would superficially or artificially worship God, but that they would worship God in spirit and in truth. That theirs would be an authentic and and genuine worship. And the genuine worship of God, church, is demonstrated in finding our supreme gladness in God. Let me say that again. Our genuineness, the genuineness of our worship of God is demonstrated by us finding our supreme gladness in God. God's aim is that the nations would so know His character and His heart and His grace and His holiness and His mercy that they would see God as their greatest treasure and their most supreme delight. Let the nations be glad, He says. Let them sing for joy. See, there is a connection here between the worship of God and the believer's joy in God. That doesn't mean that all of our worship songs need to be about happiness and joyfulness. But it does mean that when our gladness is rooted in Christ and the ground of our joy is the knowledge of God, then that itself, church, is genuine worship of God. But here's the question. For us who know God in this way and whose responsibility it is to tell a lost world about him. If our aim is that the nations, the the lost people around us, the lost people at the ends of the earth, if our aim is that the nations would find their supreme gladness in God and that God would be their greatest treasure and delight, then we must ask ourselves, is that true of us? Is God our most supreme delight? Is He our greatest treasure, church? Is He yours? Does our life give evidence of our claim that the most ultimate joy that we have is that of knowing Christ as Lord? Or is there evidence in our life that our greatest delight Our greatest treasure is something other than Christ. You see, as we hold out the gospel to a lost world this week and in the coming weeks and months and years and decades, as we hold out the gospel to a lost world as their only hope of being rescued from what they deserve and their only hope of being rescued back to a God who made them for his own glory, as we hold that gospel out to them, Maybe it's a good time for us to evaluate ourselves and see whether our lives are preaching a gospel that is different than the gospel we're preaching with our lips. Friend, are there any idols in your life that need to be torn down? Is there any sin that we're holding on to? Because if we're honest with ourselves, we're finding a greater delight in it than we are in Christ. Are there any good things that have become God things in our life? Things that have been, have become a source of inordinate gladness and joy. 
or have become to, begun to distract us from seeking first after his kingdom and his righteousness. Friend, to whatever degree that's true, let us lay aside those things. Let us smash the idols. Let's run away from that sin. And let us lay aside every encumbrance that keeps us preoccupied with the things of this world so that we would resume our primary identity as missionaries sent by the king with a message of hope and salvation for sinners like us. So my hope and my prayer with this psalm, Psalm 67, is that God would use it to cause our hearts to beat in unison with God's heart for the nations. Now, we would want to so see God glorified by the nations that we would be willing to leverage every blessing in our life for the benefit of the nations so that the peoples, all the peoples, would praise God as he deserves, right? Let's pray. Lord, as we think about your plan to use your church to make your name great among the nations, we pause to declare with one voice that we know and believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are so worthy of not only our worship, but the worship of all peoples. You are worthy of the worship of the nations. You are worthy of the worship of those peoples who are worshiping trees and rocks, other gods. You're worthy of the worship of those peoples in our own culture who are worshiping themselves. You alone deserve the worship of all peoples. And so, Father, we ask that you would find us faithful. We ask that you would use us this week and all throughout the year, Lord, to be faithful, to look for those opportunities to provide a defense for the hope that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, may our lives and our lips make your name great among the nations beginning with our neighbors and extending literally to the ends of the earth. We are humbled, Father, that you would use us. But we are grateful that you've called us to this task. And we are dependent on your abiding presence through your Holy Spirit to make us equal to the task. Use us, Father, to make your name great so that you would be praised as you deserve among the nations. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.